What's up, everybody? Dr. Robert Fredrickson here with the Fredrickson Health Show. We are so happy that you're tuning in today. We have episode number 20 of the FHS podcast. Can you believe that? We actually started this podcast in the pandemic. Didn't really know where it was going to go. Just wanted to scratch my own niche, talk to really cool practitioners about different health topics. And today we have a very cool topic, something I'm very passionate about. It's called genetic testing or nutrigenomic testing. And we have a very special guest and expert, if you will, on this subject matter. Her name is Ryan Overcast. She actually runs a health and wellness company called the Habit Method Health. And she knows all the terminology of all these different SNPs. You might have got your genetics done at one time, but you didn't really know what the R677629CT you know, allele meant. Well, in this episode, we're going to go over some of the main genetic polymorphisms what these genetics mean, how you can optimize them, how you can turn some of these on, how you can turn some of these off, and how you can really impact your health. Nutrigenomics has played a huge part in my health and wellness journey. It's actually how it got me out of chronic pain a long time ago, and so I am super passionate about the subject. So thanks so much for tuning in today on this episode. If you found it helpful, please subscribe to our channel. Please leave a nice review wherever you're listening from, and we really appreciate you tuning in, and we will see you on the next episode. Welcome to the Fredrickson Health Show, highlighting expert practitioners from health, fitness, injury prevention, functional medicine, and integrative medicine. If you are into upgrading and optimizing your health, this podcast is for you. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here is your host, Dr. Robert Fredrickson. Hey guys, we are live. This is Dr. Robert Fredrickson, your host on the Fredrickson Health Show. Today, we're going to talk all about genetics and nutrigenomics with Ryan Overcash. Ryan is a certified nutrigenomic counselor and a patient advocate. Her company, Habit Method, Habit Method Health, provides innovative wellness consulting to those interested in optimizing their health using genetic testing and genomic testing, personalized lifestyle changes, and healthy habits. Ryan spent nearly a decade struggling to resolve her own debilitating autoimmune issues. Her journey in life is to serve others as a guide and to help others live a life of health and well-being. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk um, about all of my favorite things with you. Yes, me too. And I know the weather is crazy in uh, Central Texas today. So we're we're gonna see if we can make this thing work. Earlier on the uh, pre-interview, the uh, the power went out at Ryan's house, so we're gonna see if we can make this thing work. But yeah. if not, we will we will do it again. Well, Ryan, um, I guess just for anyone who doesn't know you, maybe they don't follow you on a uh, TikTok or Instagram, can you let other people know about you and your journey with uh, with your health and also how you found nutrigenomics in the first place? Absolutely. So I spent almost 10 years struggling with kind of a wide array of symptoms that left me hopping from one doctor. I essentially was just passed from kind of one specialist to another. No doctor really seemed to know what to do with me. Um, I spent a lot of time, many years, struggling to figure out where I should even start untangling this kind of mess of symptoms. And um, at the same time, my professional career was kind of in the world of lifestyle coaching, um, fitness, spinal mobility, really helping people kind of 
live a better life, my health, unfortunately, was sort of on this steady decline. So it was it was a weird um, a weird time in my life trying to figure all these things out and eventually doing my own research and putting together some protocols that really were just logical attempts to solve these rid myself of some of these symptoms. I ended up learning about genomics and I saw a couple of practitioners who put together a few clues based on a genomic report, but I, I can't underestimate um, this part of the story. I, as soon as I found somebody who knew what to do with that genomic report, the entire trajectory of my health changed. And I always think um, that that was the key in the lock moment for me. That was the turning point in my health in the future of how I help others. Um, genomics really is an incredible tool when put in the right hands. And so part of the way that I learned to help others was to get them in touch with somebody who could execute genomic support. And now it's become kind of a staple in my practice. That is awesome. So how old were you when you started noticing the issues? And you said that you did start doing some genomic testing at that time. And I guess it was kind of new, newer back then, if it was yeah. 10, 10 years ago. Right. Well, when um, I first started developing symptoms, I was in my late teens, which was kind of a strange time because the symptoms I was developing were not appropriate for somebody my age. I was having things like pernicious anemia, which we usually see in elderly populations. I was having um, broken, brittle hair, nails, problems with my skin, problems regulating my heart rate, things that just were really strange and inappropriate for a late teen. Um, by the time I was in my early 20s, I was um, debilitated, for lack of a better term. I had a really hard time getting through the day. My energy was just unsustainable. I, I really couldn't make it through the day without a couple of naps, which made it very difficult to go to school or hold down a job. Um, I was in a lot of pain. I was having problems with my thyroid, with my hormones, all the things that really at your um, at, at 19, 20 should be automatic. Um, so eventually I was diagnosed with something called dysautonomia, which is just an autonomic nervous system dysfunction. And unfortunately didn't help put together a protocol to address any of these issues. It was sort of just like a sticker that we slapped on um, all of my symptoms. Like fibromyalgia. And Exactly. And I thought, this is so strange. Why are we diagnosing me based on my symptoms? It's like the doctor telling me, well, you know, you, you, you have a pain disorder. I was like, yes, I do. That's why I'm here. Um, it wasn't anything I didn't already know. Nobody was telling me what to do about this. So part of, um, part of the, the thing that I always like to share with most of my clients is that we're really trying to focus on addressing these root causes and not patching symptoms. I think most people are really, we, the way that we learn medicine is when we see a symptom, we put a pill on it or we patch that symptom, we turn it off, suppress it. And that is probably what led me down a 10-year journey. So it, part of what I help people do now is really try to organize their symptoms and stay focused on some of these root causes. Yes, it's kind of like the, uh, the foundation of functional medicine, right? It's finding the root cause. Right of the illness, you know, not just putting in a, a pill for an ill, if you will, right? That all exactly, right. I love that, was, that. that was nice. A pill for an ill for a will. Wow. I'm on fire today. You gotta um, make a t-shirt. Yeah, I gotta make a t-shirt for that. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, um, I, I don't think a lot of people know what genomic testing is. You know, they might have heard of uh, 23andMe. They might have heard of like right. um, heritage DNA, you know, what color are my eyes going to be? What color eyes are my kids' eyes going to be? Right? That sort of thing. But I don't think people really know how it can, you know, 
play a role in your health and how you can give you clues for what might work for you. So basically you're obviously test don't guess, but this really gives you insight. So you're like, Hey, these are my genetics. These are how I function, how my body processes certain things, what enzymes are for me, what other enzymes are for someone else. Can you explain all that for us? What genetic testing is? Sure. Yeah. And you know, one of the interesting things, um, this was really new when I had, when I was, uh, when I got my test, it was pretty cutting edge. And, um, I think there were not very many practitioners using it. And so that was kind of a tricky time to find somebody to help me. Um, so really what we're talking about here is part of epigenetics. And we are going to think about epigenetics as not so much changing our gene sequence. We're not adding or deleting genes. We're just flipping on and off the expression of these genes. So if you think about the expression of a gene, it's sort of like its ability to do its job, its ability to execute the role it's meant to have. We can support or suppress these different areas of genomic expression. Um, so when we talk about nutrigenomic testing, one of the things people always ask me is, is this going to tell me how I die? No, absolutely not. And two, is this going to tell me what color eyes my children have? No, totally different type of gene setup. We're really looking at how your body is able to metabolize nutrients, minerals, hormones. Basically think of it as like a GPS system, like a map, like you get in your car and you open your GPS for your cells, for your cellular function. So this tells us the, the why behind the what. The what is the symptom, the why is the genomics. Love it. And I guess for anyone who doesn't know, I actually had a personal experience with genetic testing. It's kind of what changed my life uh, into this realm of, you know, functional medicine, integrated medicine is I did all the tests, right? Like you and all the conventional lab tests, everyone said I was normal. You know, I was like, I don't feel yeah, normal. I, got, normal. I have all this pain, all this inflammation. Um, and then I, there's a doctor in Westlake and um, they're like, Hey, he's doing this crazy thing of genetic testing. You got to go see him. Um, it was Dr. Kendall Stewart, I think a mutual doctor of ours. Yes. And uh, so I, I was like, you know what, I'll try anything at this point. I went to him, you know, I was like, you know what, I already take vitamins. I'm fine. It's not going to work. And my gosh, after a week, Ryan, I could make a fist. I could touch my toes. I was able to, you know, do all the things I want to do. I had energy. I didn't have to go lay on the couch after work, after a full day of seeing patients. So it, it changed my life. And, um, yeah. and I was so thankful. And I think so many people don't know the, uh, the impact that nutrigenomics can have, because I was already taking all the, all the vitamins, right? I, I've, right. I've always loved vitamins, but I wasn't, I wasn't taking the right ones. You know, I wasn't taking the right ones for my genetic makeup. And yeah, so where you needed support. Sure. Right. And so I think, um, and I think genetics now, since that point has gotten bigger and bigger, you know, we have yeah, Dr. Ben Lynch, more mainstream. Dr. Ben mm -hmm. Lynch with dirty genes and all the different books out there. And everyone knows MTHFR at this point. If, yeah. they, if they haven't been living under a rock, right? But um, I think there's so many other genes that people don't realize. But um, I want to talk about, you know, what a, a SNP is, what a single nucleotide, you know, polymorphism is. You kind of already mentioned to it, but I just want to kind of get more detail for anyone who's new to this subject matter. So can you explain what a SNP is and um, maybe a typical gene setup, uh, what it looks like heterozygous versus homozygous? Could you talk about that for us? Sure. So when we're talking about a single nucleotide polymorphism, we're talking about one little area of the entire gene. So think about it like, um, like in your breaker box in your garage, we have this box with all these little tiny switches that control different areas of your house. A SNP is like one little, like the flip of the switch when you, um, you're 
your washing machine flips that switch over. We want to go in there and flip it back so that it can get back to doing its job and powering that area of your house. So when we're talking to about a heterozygous or a homozygous, a heterozygous means one broken copy. And we can think of that as somewhat like a down regulation in the gene's ability to express itself. A homozygous on, on the panels that you, you've used and that I use, we see the difference between yellow in a heterozygous or a half broken and red in a homozygous or a double broken copy. And these are really areas of genomic function that we need to pay a lot of attention to. Um, when we're talking about a genomic panel and you bring up MTHFR, I'm sure you get this all the time. People will come in and tell me, I have MTHFR, what do I do? Well, that's kind of like telling me, I have one piece of this puzzle. Can you tell me what the entire picture looks like? What we're really interested in is the pattern of analysis. We wanna see how these genes work together as like a basketball team. Everybody's got their job, everybody's got a role to play. And without one of those roles, the entire system's not working quite as well as it could. So think let, let's think less too about, um, about one gene being a problem or a, a role, one gene being um, a major role player and more about how this entire system works together. Um, MTHFR, I, I don't know why, why do you think this got so popular, just this one gene? Do patients come in and ask you that all the well, time? I think because you can say the mother effer gene, right? <laughs> it's a cute nickname, right? It's a cute nickname. Um, I don't know, maybe because uh, folate is such a big issue or, you know, it is a big issue with all the fortified foods. Everyone's putting folate in everything. And then I think Dr. Ben Lynch really shined a lot of light on folate or no folic acid. I'm sorry, blocking actual folate receptors in your body, especially if you have the MTH, MTHFR uh, SNP, especially for homozygous for that. So I don't know why I get so much um, things. I think because it makes such an impact, you know, because I had so much love. Yeah, it gets yeah. so much love and it made a huge impact for me. But um, Dr. Stewart, you know, everyone's individual. I'm not giving medical advice, but when he started putting me on MTHFR supplements, he took my inflammation away first for two weeks. Right. He, got my, he got my inflammation down and yeah, then he started getting, getting me methylating. Because so many people just want to jump over to the methylated vitamins um, right away. And they might have other right. issues, right? Might, might have mother, other inflammation, underlying inflammation that they might not know about. And um, basically, if you have a fire and you put more methyl folate on that fire, it's, it's like gas, right? So yeah, you, you gotta that's, that's a great point. And one of the things that I think he does really well, and he, he is a doctor that deserves more credit. I and mean, just like your case, he deserves so much credit for getting me to the finish line in remission. Um, and the panels that I use with my clients, he actually developed. And so I think that his teachings are um, really amazing. And I think they really make it easy for a patient to understand um, what we're looking at, what, how, why this is important. Whereas the old style test that I had, um, you know, way back uh, early, early, you know, um, 23 and me's, it was like computer code. It was so difficult to interpret. Um, there was not a lot of support in the, in the research or, um, the ability to, to, to learn more about what any of these mutations meant. So he really made it, um, easy and streamlined and he's developed some incredible products that provide, like you mentioned, some really easy and targeted genomic support. Um, when we test a patient for methylation problems, we're looking at a panel of about 15 to 18 genes, um, not just one MTHFR. We're kind of looking at all these different areas of methylation pathways in order to find, you know, where's the kink in the chain? Where could we provide optimal nutritional support? And where could we maybe save this patient some money um, 
on unnecessary supplements because none of us want to be on 25 pills a day. I just don't think that's a sustainable idea. And that might be, you know, kind of the ugly side of uh, functional medicine. At least that was something I experienced was practitioners saying, hey, why don't you take this whole bucket of pills home and let's just see what we come up with. Genomics was really a way for me to kind of target where that support needed to be and in turn saving me a lot of time, money, frustration. Um, I, I hope you're, it sounds like your experience is really similar. Yeah, and I, I think to your point, Ryan, uh, I think that's where functional medicine gets a bad rap is you, right. think, you think, hey, my insurance isn't, isn't going to cover it. I'm going to be out of pocket a lot of money. Right. Um, I'm going to be on these supplements, all these different expensive lab tests. But uh, nutrigenomic testing for me, like it was very pinpoint. It wasn't too expensive. I think it was $300 when I took it. And I was only on a couple supplements. It wasn't going to break the bank. And I think it was on only one prescription from Dr. Stewart at that time. And maybe CBD oil as well. Yeah. But, and it was just, you know, the, the right amount of supplements. It wasn't killing me. I was still taking my magnesium, of course. But um, it helped me so much. It helped me so much. And, um, you know, I work with functional medicine providers all the time. And I do see right. like those, all these supplements coming out and patients, think they need all that stuff and maybe they do but um you know maybe if it's getting more targeted more precision like with genetic testing finding exactly hey if you have a vdr taq gene which we're going to talk about for vitamin d and your vitamin d is always low well hey maybe that means that we just need to supplement more maybe we need to up your magnesium intake you know support that gene as if as as how you say it so um and i think those of us that are in health and we're providing health and coaching for others you know, we're always, we're always our best test subjects and we're always experimenting and wondering why, trying to figure out the root of these issues. And so I think like your case, similar to mine, I was really stumped, you know, why could I not get better? I was helping all these other people get better and and I was still struggling with my own health. And the fact that this changed like you is so quickly for me, I was feeling better probably within four weeks. And it, I just, I really learned why this was so helpful. And once I started seeing this help other people over and over and over, I was, I was all in. I just knew that this had to be part of, of my coaching platform. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I, cause I had tried at the rheumatologist. I tried the specialist, you know, everyone's taking x-rays on my hands and all this stuff. And within two weeks, like I was making a fist, I was able to run and able to touch my toes. My wife couldn't believe it. So she went straight to Dr. Stewart as well. Our, <laughs> all, of our, all of our kids have been over to that office, which I love because it's very preventative and saying, hey, yeah. they, have, they have certain genes, right? If, if you don't, I don't even know if you should bring up the word vac- vaccinate your child, but you know there are certain genes that people turn on inflammation different than others. And so if you can support them, you make that decision as a family and as a team with your provider, you can say, Hey, we can, we can prevent maybe a lot of these things. If we maybe space out right. the vaccines, if we, if that's what you choose to do, you know, you can make an educated decision. That's just very, a very smart decision for your family, which I love. And that's what I always say. If somebody had tested me as a kiddo, I probably could have avoided a decade of struggling with my health. So I think that that's another beautiful thing about genomics. You can test at any age because you only have to do it once in life. These genes are going to be the same from the day you're born to the day you die. There's one test. This is just a good map. Yes. I love it. It's only one test. You do it once. You got to save your results because you might lose it, but you don't have to do it ever again, right? If you know that you are very gluten sensitive, or maybe you have the celiac gene or the HLA-DQ, I think it's four and eight. Is that right? Two Two and eight, eight. Mm -hmm. which our son has, right? And so we're doing everything we can to avoid gluten as much as we can. It's hard, hard for these kiddos, but you know, we can prevent possible celiac disease later on in life, save right. our kid from a lot exactly. of harm, a lot of discomfort, a lot of pain. You know, I think that's a, it's a huge, 
huge critical piece in the puzzle. Yeah. I think when you get older, you sometimes figure out a lot of these things that you, what works for you, what doesn't, right? If you're, if you're caffeine sensitive, if what affects your sleep, what affects your mood, but right. still when you're younger, I think it has a huge impact. And I think it does with everybody anyways, because. And that's what's so interesting about the, the gluten genes. You know, a lot of people tell me, oh, well, I don't have stomach issues and they kind of haven't realized yet that the gluten gene really is an autoimmune condition. It's not it's not a, just a GI issue. It can present as a number of things like mood disorders, anxiety, depression, OCD, um, sometimes GI issues, but we're seeing a lot of like non-GI celiac related autoimmunity in things like uh, psoriasis and eczema, um, moodiness, um, all, all kinds of autoimmune issues that I think are really easy to prevent. It's just knowing where to start that can be really helpful. Yeah, and I think it's so important because you know, you, you see it all the time on social media. It's like, you can eat whatever you want. You can eat gluten. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect your health. And some people can get away with it, right? If they don't have sure. those genetic markers, they can eat gluten. They, they can be totally fine. It's not going to cause any underlying inflammation. But if someone has that gene that maybe they don't process gluten that well, it's going to cause inflammation every time they have it. And it's a big deal. I'll tell you, I don't have the, the HLA-DQ2 or Lucky. 8. I don't have any Lucky. of the gluten genes. But I still avoid it because there, I had so many issues with autoimmunity. Why, why do that to my body? Why bombard my body with just another reason to um, respond in my immune system? My goal is to really reduce how much overreaction my immune system produces. Yes. That, that, I mean, that is, that is so smart too. But there's, there's always different theories out there and everyone wants to test everyone's subject matter no matter what it is, right? Yeah. Even if it's been proven in the literature, they want to challenge you. But um, I, I wanted to ask you, because I've done a bunch of nutrigenomic testing. How many tests have you done and how many different companies oh, have, you, have, have you done? Well, <laughs> I've been offered so many tests that I've, I've been a, a guinea pig for a lot of companies, but I think I'm a pretty tough critic. Um, it's pretty tough to get my stamp of approval. I think here's the big problem right now in genomic testing. And we're, we've got these two categories. One is a consumer test where someone can just go online like 23andMe and get their test. The other is provider grade testing. And that means you get it through your doctor um, or a licensed medical professional. And there's pros and cons to both, but it can make um, it very difficult for the patient to figure out where they should start or what kind of test is right for them. Part of my job is sort of helping walk somebody walk through that process, learning more enough about their health, their symptoms, their medical history to determine what test is going to be the most thing for their buck. Um, that is really my job, especially because we really only need to test once. Let's get as much relevant information as we can on this first pass. So with consumer testing, we've got some problems with privacy. Most people are kind of aware of this now that 23andMe really is just a um, they're, they're kind of a, a basic test, but you, you in turn give up your privacy and your data to potential third parties. And for a lot of people, that's uncomfortable. Um, I, I, that wasn't something that I was even aware of back when I, I did a 23andMe, you know, long, long ago, but um, that's something now I think the patient should, should know before they give their DNA away. Um, sure. And then on the, yeah, on the provider side, these can be really difficult to interpret. They're not made for the consumer to interpret, for the patient to interpret. They're made to um, be reviewed with your doctor, with somebody who's got some background in genomics. So um, those sometimes can be a little more costly. They can be a little more detailed. Oh, you were going to say something about that. No, go, no, go ahead. 
Um, I, I think that um, there's a happy medium in a couple of, of tests. And those are usually the ones that I, I suggest to patients because um, I like a test that even if you take this to a practitioner who doesn't use genomics and you say, hey, I've got this, I've got this mutation on the MTHFR. I really wonder if you could help me figure out how to support this genetic um, mutation. They can see that panel and in very clear black and white or yellow and red terms, um, understand we need to support this. Nice. I, I love that analogy because I've done 23andMe. I've done the ProFit, DNA ProFits. Uh, have you heard of that one? And I've done uh -huh. all the, not all, but most of the GS, GSX science Ones. Uh -huh. GX sciences. Yeah. GS, yeah, GS, yeah, sorry. But uh, I've done a lot of them and they're all, I, I, yeah, I think the GS sciences one is the best for as clinical, you know, feedback. The DNA profit was interesting for me because it was all about what type of exercise is, you know, beneficial to you. Uh, what kind of, it was more caffeine, what kind of mood do you display, which is, which is cool, right? It's like, hey, you, I'm more of a power guy I was like but I'm pretty good at running but it kind of makes sense if I wanted to be more efficient with my workouts I should should do more power and strength type activities have you ever done something like that yeah. one of those tests um yeah and you know to be honest I one of the first tests I ever did was was kind of along those lines and for me what I was dealing with it was it wasn't very helpful because I was really trying to kind of get to the root cause of what sure, you thought it would mean right and instead, you know, I got a report back that was like, you might not be good at high jump. I was like, hmm, this isn't going to help me. <laughs> right. So that's why it's really important for me to understand a patient's goals when I'm trying to help them pick a test. Um, I, I think knowing somebody's background, what they're after, what, what the goal of testing is really about, that can um, determine what tests that we purchase. Yes, that, that makes so much sense, right? Yeah, if, if you have all these health issues and you're trying to get to underlying root causes, it's not going to matter what type of exercise you're doing because all exercise is going to be uncomfortable for the most part. It's not, it could be doing more yeah. harm than good. Um, I want to, I'm going to show us a, a screenshot real quick for people who are listening of what this um, test looks like. So for those listening on the podcast form, bear with us. We're going to, and if you want to go back and listen to the YouTube so you can see this, but I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. And of course, when I pull it up, it's gone. There it is. Okay. Can y'all see that? Okay. I can see it. You can see it. So this is a little sample report. This is kind of a, a just a little picture of what one of the pages might look like in what we order. So when I work with a one-on-one -on -one client, I customize a report. I build a report from scratch and we really pull all of the medically relevant data. Um, the, the, really the idea behind this is I don't want somebody paying for information that isn't helpful for them. And I really want to get information that is going to be helpful in putting together a protocol to resolve these symptoms. So we're always looking at these kind of five foundational pillars of genomics. So you mentioned inflammation, autophagy. If you aren't familiar with autophagy, definitely go read about it. It's getting a lot of buzz right now. For, they won a Nobel um, Prize. One of 2016 Medical Nobel. Um, methylation, mitochondrial function, and gut support. So all of the, or, or nutrition, I guess we could say is a better umbrella term, but um, yeah. So you can kind of see here how easy it is with the yellow, red, and green uh, color cues. So when we're talking about no clinical abnormality or a wild type, this means the gene is likely to express the way that it's supposed to. So we might not spend our time and energy supporting that until we've really looked at some of the areas that might need a little more targeted support. 
Okay, so we went over wild type. Let's go over the heterozygous results. So some yes. of those SNPs are there in the yellow. Sure, so heterozygous means a single broken copy. You can see on that little yellow tab up top, it says plus minus. And that indicates a reduced function and how well this gene is able to execute. Um, look at this one that says FUT2. This is like one of my favorite genes. I'm so glad we're getting to talk about this. <laughs> yes. Um, it plays a huge role with methylation. So everyone that has that MTHFR, this is another gene that I'd be really interested in testing, especially if you are dealing with any kind of gut insufficiencies, um, GI problems, stomach aches, things like that. Um, I have a, a homozygous on FUT2, and for me, I never really had GI problems, but what I did have was really low absorption of B12 mm. through my GI tract. Yes. And that was something that doctors missed over and over and over because I wasn't experiencing classic GI symptoms, but I was experiencing a lot of symptoms related to nutritional deficiencies. And that, that for some reason, it took a really long time for those dots to get connected. That, that's an uh, interesting note, Ryan, because I, I think Rhonda Patrick at one time when she was talking about the FUT, FUT2 gene, I get my genes mixed up, but um, basically it means that, yeah, as you said, you can't make and absorb B12 as well in the GI. So you need to take maybe a sublingual, maybe a sublingual tablet to bypass the liver's first pass metabolism, or maybe you have to go get a B12 injection weekly, right? Yeah. So, so these are different things to know because you might be taking an oral B12 and you have a homozygous um, food two gene and you're not absorbing it as well. Right. So it's all about supporting right. what your body's makeup is doing. So I, I love and it. And when I, I kind of, a, you know, just to carry on with our conversation about Dr. Stewart, when I got to him, I was actually, I had passed sublingual um, B12. I was on to weekly injectables. I was still exhibiting signs of low B12. He actually explained to me, he said, Brian, do you know the reason you're not getting better on this protocol? And I said, no, why? And he said, because this FUT2 gene, you are, he said, vitamin B is metabolized every eight hours. The half-life of vitamin B is only eight hours. So every eight hours, your body is on empty again. And mm. that was an absolute game changer. And an incredible clue as to why weekly injections were not helping me get better. So one thing we always talk about when we're, um, when I'm trying to optimize a patient's um, protocol moving forward, whether they have a doctor in the mix or not, is how to effectively communicate to that doctor what we want, what we're after and what the goals are. And I think that's kind of where the advocacy comes in, not just handing somebody a report and saying, do something with this, but saying, hey, these are the areas I really want some help. Can you help guide me through this as my provider? I love that. Yeah, that, that's so that's so intuitive. Like, hey, your B12 is, is gone every eight hours. So this weekly injection, you're getting a huge boatload of it and then your body's taking what it needs excreting the rest out because it's water soluble you can't store it right. like a pet soluble vitamin that makes so much sense right and for anyone listening there's a here's a supplement tip if you're looking for a b12 and it says tablet it's not going to tell you if it's a sublingual but more likely more times than not if it's a tablet and it's from a good company it's going to be a sublingual you just can't put that on the label because you're, then you're indicating it's a drug so put it on your tongue it will dissolve and so if you need a sublingual that's how i do it so yeah there's some great options, um, you know, if you're if you don't have access to injectables, but even things like liposomals that are yeah, delivered yes. in little tiny fat cells, those are great um, sublinguals. But really, for me, you know, avoiding cyanocobalamin and and folic acid, these synthetic B vitamins, that was a huge clue, a huge turning point. And then proper delivery mechanisms, that was the other thing that really made a big big change in my um, my health. So I want, I want to talk about um, folic acid here in a second. 
um, before I do that, I want to just, is there anything else you want to mention here on this, um, on this screen share? You want to talk about maybe a, a homozygous results? We talked about the wild type heterozygous. Yeah. So homozygous for me, I mean, it's a literal red flag. We can see it right here on the panel. Yep. So those are the areas of support, especially like this on this autophagy group, these ATGs. This to me means we really need to hit this hard. We need to provide lots of support for these areas of cellular function. Um, autophagy, the one that we were just talking about, won the medical Nobel in 2016. The incredible thing about this is this is involved in not just how well um, we can we can metabolize hormones, which I think is kind of the buzz term right now for autophagy, but really think about getting um, the trash out of the cell. And why is this important? If we can't get trash out, we can't get nutrition in. So often when a patient tells me, well, I've already tried this, or I've already been on this supplement, protocol timing for me, just like you mentioned with Dr. Stewart, is really critical. Making sure that we are addressing inflammation and autophagy, or in essence, down regulating some of these kind of crazy cellular functions before we upregulate with things like thyroid support or methylation really is the game changer for a lot of patients who've been sick a long time. I love that. Thank you so much. I'm going to stop sharing the screen here. And again, if anyone is on just listening on the podcast and they want to see this, go to the YouTube channel, Dr. Robert Fredrickson, and you will find it there. All right. So I want to do kind of a quick fire. Uh, maybe one to two minutes if we can on each of these snips, but I want to go, and I know we might go longer on some of these because some some of these that you really like, I want to talk about MTHFR with you. I want to talk about your thoughts on folic acid and why that you, you had a funny, uh, a funny meme or a funny post on social that you reshared to put it on my tombstone. Uh, no folic acid. It was, it was something like that. Can you talk about that and what that means? Sure. Well, I want to start by saying, you know, something I should have said right in the beginning, I'm not a licensed medical practitioner. I'm not a doctor. So I can't tell any patient, you know, what to do with their medical. I really advise you always talk to your doctor or a pharmacist before beginning a regimen. But if you're going to do some research, some of the things I would start with, if you know that you have MTHFR, I hope somebody has talked to you about what that means and kind of how you should change your supplementation. For me, critical to avoid the synthetics. So synthetic um, methylation support would be cyanocobalamin and folic acid. Those two things aren't found in nature. They can be really tough for the body to determine what we should do with this, and it can be tough on the liver. For me, my liver enzymes were through the roof when I was supplementing with cyanocobalamin. As soon as we switched me to methylcobalamin and methylfolate or folinic acid, not to be confused with folate, folic acid. These are found in nature. These are bioavailable forms. A really easy way to determine if your product is quality or not, flip that vitamin bottle over and check. If you see a blend that has, well, I won't put them on the spot. I was gonna show you a bad example, but it'll be too tiny. We'll, we'll post it later. <laughs> okay. um, uh, if you see a blend that has cyanocobalamin, I would put it back. We can do better. Don't spend your money there. Um, so with MTHFR, from when I'm working with a patient, one of the things that I think is really important is looking at lots of different areas of methylation support, not just the one gene. Um, a lot of people now, I think, especially in um, obstetrics and gynecology, they're, they're checking blood work for MTHFR, but not doing any of the other um, functions for methylation. And so I think it's really important to have the big picture to understand what we should do about it. I love that. Yeah, I'm always a big advocate for looking at the labels, looking for the right forms of B vitamins, looking for active folate, methylfolate, 
active B12, methylcobalamin, active magnesium, or actually good quality magnesium, because nine times out of 10, if you get a retail product, it's going to have magnesium oxide. And if I see that, mm -hmm. I just, I'm like, you know what? Put it aside. If you're taking it, throw it away, because it probably didn't cost you that much to buy that product in the first place. But uh, you're just really not giving your body what it needs. And you're probably yeah. just wasting money at that point, right? So you're probably not actually time. getting anything absorbed. And so people always yeah. ask me, uh, what are the food sources? Do I always have to take supplements? And um, we know green, green leafy vegetables, spinach are rich sources in both folate and magnesium. So there's those are some good things to do. Any other foods you want to mention, Ryan? You know, this is a question I get asked all the time. And one of, one of the questions is usually along the lines of, do I have to supplement forever? We've seen a steady decline in the bioavailability of nutrients in food since the 1940s. And so for me, um, it's not that hard for me to supplement in this targeted approach. So I, I don't mind doing it. I think it's contributing to my life. I'm really trying to stave off degenerative brain disease with trends in my family. So for me, having adequate B support um, is critical. I, I do want to add one little asterisk. If there's a listener who's tried folate or methylfolate and had an adverse reaction. Um, one of the things that can be really helpful is to decide whether or not it's the methylfolate or maybe lack of a methyl donor. So if you're low in something like phosphatidylcholine, um, you can always try adding in um, something like that or trimethylglycine, look for a product that maybe has that TMG in there or switch to folinic acid, which is still a bioavailable form. It's just not a methylated. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great information. What do you think about SAMI? Do you like SAMI for methyl, methyl donations, methyl donors? So I know you have to be careful pathways. with, with, you know, manic depressive episode patients, but. Right. That's what I was just going to say. Anybody dealing with sort of a mood imbalance, um, that's not usually, I always recommend they talk to their doctor um, before doing that. Uh, there are also some really incredible blends. Um, there are a couple that I recommend to my clients that have a little bit of SAMI, a little bit of trimethylglycine. And so we're sort of tackling all of the support in little forms rather than just one heavy hitter, like a lot of SAMI or a lot of folic acid or folate or something like that. We well, can kind of yeah, is that a is that a neurobiologics product? I think I, I can see see that one in my head. It's, it's got lithium, yeah, orotate, SAMI, uh, methylfolate, of course. But that's based on your genetics. Blend. Yeah, yeah. So he, yeah, Dr. Stewart formulated some of his own vitamins right. based based on certain genetics. Like he might have a com com T pathway, MTHFR, and whatever else, and say, hey, that product's for you. This product's not for you based on this or that. So very very individualized. That's, exactly. That's why I think that his testing really is. Um, it's very streamlined for the patient. It makes it very clear. And we can kind of talk about some of, of the blends that will support the entire pathway and not just this like Jeep back to the idea of the gene to pill or the symptoms. Yeah, exactly. Setup. Love that. Okay. So we talked about MTHFR. Let's talk about COMT, the, the warrior gene or the warrior. <laughs> yeah. Right? So COMT stands for catecholamine O-methyltransferase. And this is a methyl donor. So we really want to make sure that we're supporting. I always like to describe this as sort of like the reserve tank. Um, if, if methylation is a gas tank, um, methyl donors are like the reserve tank. So we want to make sure that these are there for adequate support. Um, we also want to talk about um, COMT. You mentioned warrior. People always say this, like the warrior, the warrior. Yes, um, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, highly responsible for anxiety. So we know that when COMT gets triggered, that can actually be um, 
very linked to the why behind some of these symptoms of anxiety and really help us sort of tackle the root cause of anxiety. So if I have a client who really wants to support anxiety in a way that doesn't require pharmaceuticals, we'll start tackling those methyl donor pathways and making sure that those are getting adequate support, especially in times of stress. Love it. Love it. Okay. VDRTAQ, that was on the chart we just showed a second ago, but that's a vitamin D receptor gene. Um, tell us about that, Ryan. Oh, I have a love-hate <laughs> relationship with VDRTAQ. It, yeah. um, it tried to ruin my life. Yeah. Oh, no. So, um, I, have, I actually have four broken copies across two vitamin D genes, which is pretty crazy. I don't know that I've ever tested somebody that has all four of those down. Um, but one of the things I think is really interesting is so some of the studies that have come up in the last few months in regards to um, COVID patients and vitamin D. And what we're seeing in people that have a lot of trouble getting their vitamin D levels up. Now, because vitamin D is fat soluble and essentially a human being could reach toxic levels, although you'd have to try really, really hard, I always recommend a client talk to their medical professional before adding in high dose vitamin D. For me, it took almost 10,000 units a day for me to get levels up to normal. And I was using a vitamin D3 plus K2 because we know that vitamin D relies on K2 for transport. And so these are some things that I always like to help educate a client on one, when we're picking a product, let's make sure that's the best one we can find. And two, let's ask our doctors about all the contraindications associated with some of these, um, these supplements that we're not just grabbing something off the shelf, taking it home and doing our own little experiment. We're really applying targeted precision nutrition. I love that. And um, so many people, I get asked all the time, like, Am I, I'm going to take too much vitamin D. I'm too scared to take uh, 5,000. Like 5,000, in my opinion, is, is nothing. But of course, always ask your doctor. But of course, yeah. test your levels. Test your levels. Vitamin D is not on, usually not on a standard lab panel. And if it is, the reference range are usually off because most doctors are going to say, hey, if you're over 30, that you're good. But with all the COVID of last year, it was like, hey, most practitioners agree we should be somewhere in the 50 to 70, depending on where you ask. And some practitioners even go higher. But for me personally, right. I have two copies. Um, I, I, think I've only, I think I have two copies of two of the VDR TAQ SNPs. And so I have a really hard time getting my vitamin D up, even though I'm out in the sun a lot. I take probably 10,000 I use daily. And if I'm sick, Ryan, I actually will take 50,000 three days yeah. in a row just to get my immune system ready and primed and all that. And I've never had any, I've never, I wish I could get it higher, but literally with that gene, it's limiting the absorption. So for me, right. I always take my vitamin D with a meal, of course, pair it with K2, make sure my magnesium uptake is optimal, not adequate optimal. So I can actually convert vitamin D to its active form. And if you have that gene, it's good to know that you're not going to overdo it in most cases, because I've tested myself so many times. I know that I can take a big bolus amount and be okay. So. Exactly. And I asked a practitioner once, where did we get the ruling that 40,000 units international units daily was uh, essentially reaching toxic levels. And she actually replied to me and said that those levels were based on a post-World War II minimum for survival. And I thought, wow, you know, you think about this back then, you know, that we had a lot more um, agriculture in our, our country. We were, um, we had a lot more people that were working out in sunlight daily, less office building than we have now. And so um, our supplement needs might have been much lower than what they are today. So I don't know if that will ever be adjusted, but I thought that that was a really interesting response. That is very interesting. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. I didn't know that. 
It makes sense though. Okay, let's go to GAD1. This, this gene has made a profound effect on my, on my life, um, but I want you to tell everyone what GAD1 is and what we can do to help support that gene if we have it. I know, I feel like um, some of these are a little bit of a mouthful. So I'm doing this from, <laughs> from my brain. I don't have this in front of me, but I probably should have. But There's no teleprompter guys, this is all from Ryan, Ryan's no brain. Yes. <laughs> glutamic acid decarboxylase. I'm just picturing somebody in the um, in the comment section being like, you mispronounced decarboxylase. Um, so what we're really thinking about yeah, <laughs> is glutamate to GABA, right? So we're thinking about the seesaw, glutamate being our excitatory neurotransmitter, our most prominent neurotransmitter. Um, people might remember the word glutamate from monosodium glutamate or MSG that so many of us are trying to avoid now in things like, um, you know, take home Chinese food. Uh, Chick-fil-A, unfortunately, is a, a really, yeah, I know. Uh, Everybody no. goes. Is, is yes. it in the sauce or is it in the batter? Everything. What? Every single thing on their it, menu. The, yes. grilled, the grilled nuggets have MSG. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I know. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's tough. But yeah, so yeah, people, natural flavors, you know, you have to like really trust your manufacturer and, and figure out what the natural flavors are if you're sensitive and maybe have this genetic snip. But just glutamate toxicity is so, so important for chronic pain and for inflammation and yeah. everything else in between. And a lot of people don't realize how bad glutamate makes them feel. Um, obviously, it's it's necessary for us to have some. It's it's in our brain for a good reason. But for most of us, we don't need an excitatory response all day long, especially when we're trying to come home and unwind and get ready for bed and really reduce some of the stress on our, our system and our brain. So we want to be able to have adequate GABA to support that. And for those of us that have a, a GAD mutation, that GABA cannot really do its job effectively. And we might need some extra help. Now, the, the other thing we know about a GAD mutation is if you just try to pop some GABA, you're not going to use it. In fact, you're going to create more of a glutamate storm. So we want to um, use some other things like your favorite magnesium to help support that GAD mutation. This is a question uh, I want to ask you about. Would glycine uh, be converted like GABA or is that different? Magnesium glycine? Well, no, just glycine in general because I mean, glycine has got its own host of benefits and it's neuroinhibitory. So I just, I don't know the answer to that. No, I, I'd love to know. Um, I, I will love, I'd love to find out. I'm pretty good at like, if I'm not the expert, I'll go hunt them down. Um, cool. I was just I wondering, like to, yeah. I, just, I just thought of it. Awesome. Okay. Let's talk about, we already talked about this a little bit, but I think we need some more attention to it. Um, um, FUT2 gene for anyone who didn't see the picture before. So uh, FUT2, fucosal transferase. So let's think about this being, um, part of the methylation cycle, sort of like a little uh, sister group to the methylation cycle, because we're talking again about vitamin B12. And then we're also talking about it in uh, its role for gut function. So I, this is one gene, if I have somebody who tells me, hey, I've been to every gastroenterologist, I am really stumped. I cannot seem to get a handle on why I'm dealing with chronic stomach aches or digestive issues. First place I wanna look is FUT2. Um, I, when I was dealing with some of these kind of crazy symptoms, I had a giant, um, sorry, ear must for anybody with a sensitive stomach, but I had kind of a raw spot on my tongue. My gums were constantly bleeding, which is a really, um, now I know is a surefire indicator for low B12, but it took a really long time for a doctor to recognize that because of my age, it was just really inappropriate. 
So one of the things that I think we could talk about too with FET2 is your ability to transport nutrients through the GI tract. It can also lead to increased susceptibility for bacterial overgrowth, yeast or candida that sometimes um, are missed with um, kind of a traditional or Western medicine approach. So it can be, um, it, you can really support FUT2 with pre and probiotics. Love that. Then, yeah, then maybe increasing stomach acidity. If you need that, if you're older, um, getting the methylated sublingual B12 or the liposomal, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. some great things. And one to thing I, I think is so interesting that I keep seeing um, with people who have an FUT2 mutation, they often come to me on PPIs or proton mm, pump inhibitors. Yeah. So they're even further reducing the amount of available stomach acid, which is really there to help um, break down our food and put it to work, make sure that those nutrients get delivered where they need to. And a proton pump inhibitor will just reduce um, bioavailability of nutrients. So kind of uh, what the idea again is when we're treating the symptom, we're sort of missing that warning sign that the body's trying to give us. Yeah, I, I bet you might actually see more SIBO patients, you know, more bacterial overgrowth patients because SIBO, as you know, it's an overgrowth where bacteria from the large intestine migrate or translocate uh, superiorly uh, to the small intestine. One of the key causes is slow motility, but also low stomach acid. So, right. Um, yeah, it's a big deal. So, so setting yourself up for abdominal effective problems, right? right? Which you could have treated or supported effectively if you knew you had that gene to begin with. And you started taking B12 vitamins and not having to go down that route of PPI, but yeah, that's another, that's another story. Okay. Let's that's talk about it. That's another show. We need to get you back on for sure. Um, estrogen dominance genes, um, CYP one B one. Is that the right, did I get right. it right? Yep. Okay. And CYP 19A both have play a role in estrogen, uh, estrogen dominance. So if I have a patient who is either dealing with, um, signs and symptoms of estrogen dominance or PCOS, um, PMDD, all of these things. The first place I want to look is understanding more about how their body's able to metabolize um, estrogen. And this is really important. We we talk a lot about, we hear a lot about, about the carcinogenic risk of estrogen, but we also know that this is um, responsible for making sure that we feel our best. And when our hormones aren't optimized, really everything else feels kind of crummy. So making sure that we can metabolize uh, estrogen properly. One, a really great supplement to support CYP19A is DIM. And I think a lot of people are kind of learning more about DIM these days because it's made um, kind of essentially broccoli, but um, you know, making vegetables. sure that- Yep, sulforaphane. So making sure that we are able to metabolize this and looking back at those autophagy genes so that we can get trash out nutrition in, you know, hormones are responding the right way. Those two things really, um, th this is by having an adequate panel and not just one gene, um, really act as the map to your optimal health. Yes, I love that because so many so many people are on hormone replacement and then they go and dim if they knew they had that gene for estrogen dominance. They can right. start eating for their genes, right? More cruciferous vegetables, but taking a DIM supplement. I love saying this, two pounds of broccoli equals 100 milligrams of DIM. Uh, and I think that is just so profound because everyone's like, oh, supplements, I can just get it from my food. I'm like, well, do you really want to eat two pounds of broccoli every day? I yeah, don't. you're going to be a busy person. That's right. <laughs> That's right, for sure. <laughs> okay. full-time job. full-time job. Okay, let's talk about uh, it. We got one of, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was going to say one of the clinics that I run testing for, actually, they um, they offer hormones, bioavailable hormones. And before they do, they always want to test a female patient to make sure that this does not increase her risk of um, estrogen-related cancers. So I think um, this is a really great way to kind of prevent any unwanted adverse reactions. Personalized preventative medicine. Who would have thought? Who would have thought we could do that? <laughs> Right. I love that. That's a great right. clinic. Um, probably need to get their notes for the show notes later. Cause I'll, get, I'll probably get asked questions on that. Okay. Let's go over this gene of uh, Fox E1. Foxy one. Yeah. Uh, this Foxy is one. a gene that um, also tried to ruin my life. Yeah. Um, so I, this gene is responsible for thyroid function, um, specifically around um, selenium availability and T3 conversion. Whenever I test Foxy one, I always, I, if I have the choice, I really like to inc also include DIO2. And together, these give us some really great clues into how well the thyroid is functioning, how efficient the body is taking T4 and use, making adequate T3 to support the thyroid. One of the things that I think was um, another stumbling block in my healing was the fact that I just kept getting put on synthetic thyroid, which is just T4, like Synthroid. And I was not able to convert that to usable T3. So on paper, my labs looked sort of normal, definitely not optimal for somebody my age, but they just kept taking the dose up and up and up to the point that I was um, not really feeling so much worse. I was nervous. I was anxious. My heart was racing all the time, um, but I was still incredibly symptomatic as somebody with hypothyroidism, which for and my endocrinologist was very confusing. Um, as soon as I got this report to somebody who understood what they were looking at, they took one look at that Foxy one mutation and said, oh, you need to be on a natural desiccated thyroid support that contains not only T3, but also T4 and is bioavailable. So now my body said, oh, I know exactly what to do with this. Let me use this to help support my thyroid and in turn, give it some relief. Another great gene. I love that story, Ryan. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so many people have thyroid issues that they just yeah. go on medication for. Can't resolve. Can't resolve. They don't, they don't know how to support it. They don't know the vitamins and cofactors that, that help with that. Oh man, we could go on and on. Okay, dopamine genes. Let's go over DRD2. DRD2. So um, when we're talking about D DRD2, one of the things I think that's really critical in terms of chronic pain patients is making sure that we understand their dopamine pathways. Because this is going to tell us a lot about whether or not they're going to be a good match for specific medications. Um, there are, I'll try to stay away from talking about pharmaceuticals just because that's probably not an area that I'm, I'm qualified to discuss, but if you want to chime in, I think, I, I think we've got the same idea on that one. Um, but when we're thinking about supporting dopamine and um, metabolizing some of these neurotransmitters, DRD2 um, can be incredibly helpful in determining whether or not somebody is not only going to respond adequately, but whether or not we need to increase the dose of specific medications for them to um, feel optimal. Yes, so I love that. Would, would, that, be, would that be indicated for, for Parkinson patients because of the dopamine production? Um, yes, I, there's also a gene called PARK2, P-A-R-K-2, okay. that is used. Um, but I have a lot of clinicians who are actually using full methylation panels to understand more about Parkinson's um, and nervous system response. So um, there are, I would say, probably some of uh, the GABA genes and um and dopamine, also um, nervous system support across the board is pretty critical. I, 
awesome information, Ryan. Yeah, you're, you're on fire. You have these genes memorized. Okay, so we, we did really quickly on these genes. And was there any other genes that we did not mention that you would like to talk about? You know, I think the biggest takeaway is really not to order one gene or get duped into getting a test where you just get one gene and you get a binary answer, a yes, no back. I think it's really important when we're talking about resolving root issues to look at the, the big picture and the big takeaway, how your body is going to respond um, across these different areas of cellular function and not just this one role. Um, I think for years, that was sort of what held me back and what now I really try to educate clients on making sure that they are getting a report that's really well-rounded and really sufficient. Yeah, and probably finding a practitioner who does this um, full-time, who can really help analyze your results, give you a clear-cut pathway to, to health and wellness, and to really just help you understand these genes, right? Because they're, they're kind of complicated when you first look at it. Um, you have to know what you're doing. You have to have a practitioner who, who has done the training, who, who knows what they're doing as well. And um, I think if they if you found a practitioner who could do that for you, I think you'd make some really good headway in your health and you would probably save yourself a lot of time later on. Um, I think it's becoming more mainstream. It's, I do it's too. Coming. Yeah, it's coming so slowly but surely. I think the pandemic did open up. Um, there were some positives out of the pandemic. I think vitamin D was one of them. I think shedding light on some of the immune, you know, immune supplements, right? Like NAC, selenium, glutathione, vitamin C. Yeah. Um, and preventative medicine as a whole. Yeah. Working out, keeping your blood sugar low. Um, who would have thought that that would actually keep you healthy, right? So crazy. Definitely. <laughs> okay. Um, let's talk about um, eating for your genes and how, how testing for your gen genetics can lead you to a certain diet type that might be better for you. We know in this industry, there's a lot of trends. Like right now it's, it's keto. Maybe it's not keto. Maybe it's more carnivore now, but all these trends pop up. And I know for me, for instance, my personal story is that I actually have a copy of the Alzheimer's genes of the APOE34. I don't have both copies, just one. And so when I process saturated fat, I actually, cause I was doing a test and I was doing like um, MTT oil in my coffee in the morning. And, uh, my lipids were through the roof. Like I was shocked. Like my weight was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty stable. It's kind of the same as my last test, but my lipids, I was like, Ooh, that's not good. Um, and then I know there's some controversy behind that, but anyways, what are your thoughts on that? How does ge genetic testing help you with determining the right diet type for you? So, I mean, really when someone comes to me, the most basic thing I can tell them is here are the red flags. Here are the things that I think if you want to improve your health, let's stick to these top three. If I'm working with someone who says, okay, we can dive a little bit deeper. Let's build out a little bit more information. We can talk about um, not only the do's and don'ts, but the types of food, not necessarily. I really try to stay away from advising people on trendy diets. I think um, we're all very unique. And I don't know that there's any like group of people who are necessarily going to always benefit from trendy diet A or trendy diet B. I think, you know, my company is called the habit method because I want this to be as easy as a habit for you. I want you to wake up and really feel like, oh, I got this. This fits seamlessly into my life. It's not a challenge. I'm, I can't, I don't have to tell my friends, sorry, I can't eat out. I'm on a special diet. This is about the rest of your life. So one of the things that I really, um, I really like to help people adjust is figuring out how to eat what they like while supporting the areas of genomic function that, um, that we really need to target every day. And 
the idea is if if you want to do something once in a while as a treat that's okay because your body's running like an optimal machine for for 99 of the time um i will self-admittedly kind of put myself out there and say as a, a young person i was eating pretty much the opposite diet of what i needed to be eating to support this i had i had no clues and, and my parents are great people they really thought that they were feeding me healthy food um we just didn't know any better and so one of the things now that i try to teach people i use my story to help explain um kind of where the pitfalls were i was eating a lot of like shelf stable snack food with folic acid that probably led to depletion of available folate in my diet um i was not a very um I wasn't eating a lot of. All right, guys, we are back. We had a small technical, technical difficulty, error. technical error. And um, <laughs> so they might have a little bit of a lag here halfway through. But good thing I wrote these questions down. And so I actually have been able to jump right back in. So we were just talking about eating for your genes. We were talking yeah. about um, ApoE for me, ApoE 3-4 and saturated fat, which you also have, Ryan, but right. you were just talking about the trends, the diets, um, and what has led you to the path you have by testing your genetics and knowing which diet type is actually genetically beneficial for you. So I think that's where we left off. Let's, um, let's take it back there. So making a big transition from the way that I grew up eating as a kid, which was a lot of like shelf-stable processed food and eating more whole food. Um, I eat a lot of plants now, which I, I unfortunately didn't as a kid. I think that really could have saved me with some of the methylation issues. Um, I was a, we'll say I was a pizza-itarian as a kid. I was like Same. a yeah. Yeah, peanut butter and jelly-itarian. Um, and not, I was really not interested in uh, lean meat or vegetables. And unfortunately, I think that really kind of teed up some of these epigenetic expressions that led me to be symptomatic. So um, in, in adulthood and kind of learning more about my genes, I've really tried to integrate things like large amounts of green leafy vegetables. I eat a lot of um, lentils. I try to have um, a pretty substantial amount of, of protein in my day. I, I really stay away from things that are packaged process. And one of the things people are always surprised that is like on my absolute no, never list is whey protein. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's very inflammatory, especially for people with that FUT2. I don't have the MCM6 mutation related to lactose intolerance, but it can be um, a, a tough trigger for people with autoimmune issues. So I would say if you're interested in eating for your genes, talk to someone who can help you. This is kind of how I help a, a patient. I will work with them and learn more about their symptoms. We'll decide what to pick, what genomics we need to look at, talk about their lifestyle, and then we'll start talking about big bullet points around uh, longevity, lifestyle, how to integrate these ideas. And if we need to bring in like a clinical nutritionist to develop a really detailed meal, meal plan, we can do that with the help um, of a professional. Love it. What, what individual uh, genes did you have that, um, I know we had the FUT2 gene, what other genes did you have that led you to your specific diet type? Methylation was huge for me. Foxy1, huge for me. Uh, VDR TAC was a, a big game changer. And what I really want people to know is I didn't just win the unlucky lotto of all of these poor mutations. What I did is set myself up for a very um, intense domino effect of you know one system down started relying on the next system which went down next system went down 
And a lot of people will ask me things like, well, you know, if I want to eat for my genes to lose weight, what should I do? My always, always my first answer is I want you to stop thinking about weight as the goal because it is a symptom. We aren't interested in symptoms. We're interested in root causes. So how do we support the metabolism to reduce uh, some of these metabolic disorders happening? Um, how do we support glycemic and, and insulin response? Um, also, I think I have uh, something called, I have a mutation on the FTO gene, which is kind of thought of the as obese gene, that. right? The yeah. obese gene. I have never had a problem with my weight, um, but that's because I'm really supporting some of these like fundamental pillars of genomic expression. If I was to really abuse those, I think my body would say, hey, we're out of resources. What, what are we going to do? We're going to start putting on weight and that's going to be our protective mechanism. So interesting. Yeah, because you don't display the FTO gene expression at all. So, yeah. Well, and funny enough, last month I tested someone who struggled with her weight her entire life, and she actually has no mutation on any FUT, on her FTO, on her P PPARG, um, on her ADPOQ, none of these genes that we sort of think of um, as the fat or obese genes or leading someone to obesity. Um, th this is why when we are talking about genes, this is our map. It's not our destiny. And really making that clear difference is, I think, the most important thing I can help a client with. Um, I think research has shown now that at best, genomics, uh, genetics really are only a 50% role player. Everything else is lifestyle. So Epigenetics, there's, right? Yeah. Th there's no... Um, there's no bad information in genomics. It's all just helpful, a helpful guide. Yeah, it's just information. Yeah, because everyone's like, oh, it's my genes. I can't lose weight. I shouldn't even try yeah. because I'm, off the hook. I'm doomed, right? So yeah. it's, I think we need to get out of that mindset. And uh, maybe for those people, they shouldn't even test their genes because they do have that gene. Maybe say, oh, I'm, I'm doomed. Maybe, maybe they will actually take the right steps like you did and support the other genes into a life of abundance and life of wellness. So two, two different ways to approach that. All right. I'm so scared that we're going to get cut off again. And I don't want to, because this is such a good interview. <laughs> we're, we're talking so fast now. Yeah. I know. We're like, we're like in TikTok lane, like 60, 60 yeah. seconds. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so your job at Habit Method Health is to be a patient advocate, uh, which basically means, you know, fighting for your patients and for your clients to how to approach doctors and maybe a conventional manner, how to get conventional doctors to support more alternative ideas, if you will, and how to support other ways of testing, which are nutrigenomic. What do, what is your approach to clients who are having trouble getting the message across to the doctor and say, Hey, I, I don't, I want to test some different things. What are some good questions to ask a doctor to get them on board, or maybe just to agree to looking outside the box? I think the way that you ask the question is very important. That's probably the first thing I work with my clients on is learning how to phrase this in a way that tees up a partnership between you and your practitioner and not a tug of war. I think most practitioners are really interested in getting you the help that you want and resolving symptoms. I, I, you know, I really try to never sound like I'm demonizing or villainizing the practitioner. I remember being really frustrated and I certainly had a few run-ins where I thought, man, you know, this person took the Hippocratic oath. How in the world can they turn around and treat me like this? So I'm very sensitive to frustrating experiences. I think, um, 
we as patients need to come prepared. Part of what I teach in my advocacy education is how to organize your medical information in a way that gets a doctor's attention and clearly outlines what your goals are. If you come to them, um, one day I'll, I'll send you a picture of this giant three ring binder I used to carry around that had pretty much like all of my medical information. And what I learned very quickly is when I handed a doctor this big notebook and said, here you go, this is all my information. They'd basically take a step back and say, man, this girl's bonkers. I don't think I wanna work with her. When I took a step back and really started organizing this medical information and went in as if it was a job interview and said, hi, I'm Ryan. These are the things I could really use some help with. Could you be my teammate in this? It allowed them to determine whether or not I was the right match for them. And sometimes they'd save me the time and say, no, I don't think I am, but here's who you should talk to. And other times they'd say, yeah, I, th I think you have a good uh, reason for wanting to request this blood work. I often will help my, my client determine what blood work we should request. And if we get some pushback, there's sometimes a, a doctor that wants to call me and say, hi, why are we requesting this? And I can usually say something like, well, you know, um, uh, John has a VDR TAC mutation. We'd really like to check his vitamin D a couple times a year before supplementing. Would you be willing to help us do that? And more often than not, they're really willing to do that. But of course, there's always um, the instance where the patient says, hey, my doctor's just really unwilling to run a full thyroid panel. And in that instance, I say, well, maybe we can find a better match. And if I can help them find somebody out of my network, then I think that's great. And um, if not, then I, I'm willing to go on the hunt, try to track somebody down. Yeah. So you connect patients and clients with doctors who you think are going to be best suited for that doctor, but you also empower I, I do them. my best. It's, you do your yeah, best. It's pretty I'm sure tough, it's a hard job. State lines. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. It's a huge, but you're such a, it's such a cool concept. And just the way you phrase that, just, Hey, go to the doctor. Hey, these are some things that I'm having trouble with. I want you to help me with, but understanding that I'm not relying completely on you, doctor. I'm you know, making willing it part of my the work in. willing to put the work in. You're you're going to be part yeah. of my health team, and you know, be kind of a mentor. But you're not going to be the, you know, the sole dictator, which some of these doctors think they are, and that's where we get in trouble. That's kind of where we've gotten to the place that we are today. Is doctors maybe yeah. don't don't want to test anything other than TSH because they don't understand the other things, and they don't want to be willing to admit that either, or, or you know, or some, they're will, they're worried about the patient incurring the cost for some of these additional sure, tests. Yeah. And so I think that's a good question to ask too, is, you know, are, is there a reason you won't run this? Or could you tell me why you won't run this? And, um, you know, open communication. And I think it's also, you know, our job to follow up in due time. I think that it's not your doctor's job to track you down. They're very busy and they have a lot of people. And so making sure that you're communicating effectively what you want, what, you know, ask before you leave, when should I follow up? Um, ask questions like, are, is there anything I can do in my lifestyle to avoid medication? Those are things that we really aren't taught um, to, to ask. Are we, you know, when our doctor says, well, your blood pressure is really high, why don't we put you on some blood pressure medication? I would always advise the first thing you should ask is, what can I do in my life to reduce this symptom? How can I support this before medication? Are you, can, can I try that first? Um, and asking, what are the downsides of medication? I think that's really simple. It's just not, no one's ever told us to do that. Yeah. I, I just listened to another podcast. Um, I guess last week, the question was, what is going to happen if I don't do anything? Is my blood pressure going to kill me? And usually the answer is no, you know, not, not everyone's, everyone's different, but not yet. Right? Yeah. But everyone's gonna be like, uh, you, you don't have to go on this medication right away. What, what happens if we wait? 
is another question. What happens if we wait on this routine x-ray at the dentist? What's going to happen? Usually it's- or What are the downsides of getting yeah. on this medication? Yeah. What are the downsides? What are the potential side effects? Um, what are the natural alternatives to said XYZ pharmaceutical, right? So there's so many questions. I always ask that. I'm always like, hey, do I have to go on this prescription? Is it okay if I wait to see if my labs change? If just doing some lifestyle stuff and the doctors I've worked with, like, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead and try that. Um, so I'm always, yeah, but I'm, I'm really <laughs> a researcher to my own health. So but, yeah, um, me yeah, too. But, yeah. I'm sure I'm a giant pain in the butt sometimes. I'm sure I am too. Yeah, I'm sure doctors <laughs> hate seeing me that once a year. Okay. All right. So these are some, uh, these are some more fun questions for you, Ryan. I've had such a pleasure and uh, I've had a lot of fun just talking with you today. Um, but I want to ask you a few questions. Okay. So if you were okay. to make a billboard and we'll say the busy street in Austin or San Antonio, where everybody in the world is going to pass this billboard and you could write your message, a health related message in one to two sentences, what would that phrase be and why? Oh, getting, getting me to summarize uh, in a short way is kind of tough. I would say probably um, treat root causes, not symptoms. That's kind of my t-shirt slogan. Um, educate and advocate would be my other one. Make sure that you are doing a good job to educate yourself and advocate for yourself. I love it. That's perfect. Short and sweet. Love it. Get to the root cause. Okay. If you're on a desert island and you have the option to only pick one health-related item, it could be a supplement. It could be a, I guess, a genetic test for you. <laughs> it might be one or it could be anything. What would you pick and why? I'm going to say, I think the biggest game changer, like the thing I can't live without is methylated B vitamins. Okay. Nice. Total, total game changer for me. Um, I notice almost immediately when I'm not, you know, kind of doing what I'm supposed to do with my methylated B vitamins. If I slack off immediately, I feel like my, my brain just goes to like, you know, battery level zero. So uh, key for me. Love it. You're the first B vitamin person I've had on my show. So that's awesome. Really? Yes. What, yes. what other answers have you had? Um, Last one was a mitochondrial support. I'm always magnesium. I, I feel if I don't take magnesium for a day, I am completely not the same person. My muscles ache. My, I don't feel as energetic. So everyone's different, right? Everyone's got these different. What's your, what's your favorite kind of magnesium? Mine is magnesium malate. I know most, most people say magnesium glycinate, um, but I have so many muscle <laughs> issues or pains, right? Chronic pain. So magnesium malate, I take a blend of malate, glycinate, and a little bit of citrate just to get okay. different absorption patterns. And so that really helps sure. me out a ton. Thanks cool. for asking. Love thanks, it. For, thanks for asking. Okay. So if you were in my shoes, Ryan, and you could have asked questions differently or something I didn't ask, what would that question be? And uh, what else would you like to talk about with, that we didn't mention today? I think you really covered it. I think the maybe the only thing that we didn't talk about today, but I think this might be a whole nother topic is supporting the parasympathetic nervous system. This is something that my clients always want to talk to me about. And in fact, I probably should come and interview you because I think you might be the expert uh, between the two of us, but um, really something that I was neglected in talking um, in, in any practitioner delivering information to me. It was kind of something I had to stumble across on my own, kind of in reference to my background in spinal mobility and learning and understanding how to support this and how key it is for our 
health, our healing, especially when we're trying to get out of some of these chronic health problems. So um, I have a couple of ways that I do that with my, uh, with my own kind of health journey, but you know, making sure that in addition to supplementing and eating right and watching my stress levels, I always make sure that I'm doing something that really feeds my soul, which I think for a lot of us, when we're not feeling our best, that can be tough. I mean, for me, it's as simple as something like walking to my, walking my dog and listening to an audiobook, just kind of tuning out and, and calming down. And I spend most days on calls with doctors and patients and it's really rushed. And so at the end of the day, it's really nice to kind of like give my body the clue that it's time to start unwinding. Um, so I think for most people struggling, that, that'd be something I'd love to talk to you more about. Yeah, we could do another show for sure and talk all about that and your spinal mobility tactics and the other, all the other cool modalities that you do at Habit Method Health. The newbie. The newbie. Yeah. That's another hour for sure. Um, so let's talk about that. Where can people find you, Ryan? Where can they find all your great work online? Where can they find you on social media? So the website is habitmethodhealth.com. Um, we are just about to launch a new website with a big e-store because we are going to roll out some really fun education this summer. The goal is to be able to get this information out to anyone and everyone who could benefit from it. So um, Habit Method Health, great place to track me down. You can find me on Instagram, um, also Habit Method Health, and then TikTok is Ryan.HabitMethodHealth, which is the long one. The long one. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Ryan, this has been so much fun. So informative talking today about genetics and nutrigenomic testing. And I really appreciate you sharing your story today on the show. And for anyone listening, find Ryan, find her on social media. If you're learning, looking to learn more about nutrigenomic testing, you know, definitely send her a message and she'll be happy to connect you with a doctor or be able to help you herself. And everyone, if you could, please a review on iTunes. That would really help us get the show out to as many people as possible. And we will see everyone on the next episode. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for listening to the Fredrickson Health Show. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, leave us a rating and review. Follow us on social media and subscribe to our email newsletter for more information.